1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Here with me today is inevitably not professional holiday taker and dog lover Thea Lena but professional indie pop star and non-reader of the TLS, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello.
2: Hello. You're not
1: strictly a professional indie pop star anymore. I'm not
2: a pop star and I am a reader about that. How about an absolute negative of what you just said?
1: Were you ever... Classed as a professional pop star.
2: Well, if you mean, do, do you ever make any money out of yeah. it?
1: Yes. Did you? Yeah. Good money. Would
2: you like to know exactly no, how No, I think that
1: would be vulgar.
2: <laughs> I wasn't going to tell no, you. No. But, but a living? Uh, define living. Yeah, not a proper living. <laughs> well, I was, I was at university, so...
1: Young. yeah.
2: All
1: right. Uh, here's the bit where I stop bothering Lucy and plug subscription of the TLS to give you a special offer available only to our podcast listeners. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19. You'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. Coming up on this week's show, our theme in the paper is the avant-garde that terrifying urge to be original at all costs. We have lots of pieces on the subject, including by experimental editor Michael the Dr. Keynes on the subject of unusual literary criticism. He'll be in the studio. We live in a world of conspiracy theories. I once did a phone-in on the subject, and boy, do some people believe some strange things. Of course, I would say that being a member of the MSM controlled by a shadowy, all-powerful cabal. Thankfully, historian Jill Lepore will join us to explain where this all began. And philosophy editor Tim Crane talks us through the problem of free will. Well, he had no choice when you think about it. The great lesson of life, it seems to me, is that almost everything happens by chance or accident, a concatenation of blunders and choices that only seem inevitable in retrospect, where there is a reason it's almost always cock-up, not conspiracy. And yet, as Jill Lepore points out this week, having reviewed a whole bunch of books on the subject, conspiracy theory has a very long history. People have been always striving for explanations, especially when accident is either not convincing or not comforting. But conspiracy mongering does seem to be a peculiar symptom of modernity. To scapegoat, to congregate online and swap evidence and so on. What does the history tell us about where we are now? Jill joins Lucy and me on the line now. Jill, hello.
3: Hey, how are you?
1: Very good. Now, is it too simplistic to say that as humans have recognised their own individual agency more, they've speculated about conspiracy more too? Is there's been a sort of as we've developed as humans, we've kind of developed conspiratorial theories at the same time?
3: Well, yeah, (laughs) I love your intro. How really, it comes down to cock up because that is really what most of human happenstance is. But I think it's not so much. The, our turn to being individuals, but really we could think about it as secularization. The the great comfort of thinking that everything that happens is part of a greater design by God is a great vaccination against conspiratorial thinking, right? Like that. It, it in a sense, that's a conspiracy, but it's a conspiracy of, you know, the gods or God and Satan or the angels or Satan himself. Or, I mean, there's a lot in our world that causes us pain and that is mysterious to us. And sweeping explanations of supernatural forces for most of human history have done the work of answering our questions and, and, and quieting our fears.
1: And presumably, I mean, a thousand years ago, people's lives were genuinely ruled by a shadowy cabal of a few people. I mean, that wasn't a conspiracy theory. There were all powerful people constructing uh, the world around them. As people have got more individual, as the world has got more complex, then there's room for false conspiracy theories, maybe
3: yeah, because there's also uh, the the democratization of knowledge. And so the more and the systemization of knowledge, so the the more schemes of knowledge offer us the ability to see things that were previously invisible. I mean, think about x-rays or germs or DNA, the agents that cause cancer, the secrets inside of a woman's body that allow us to see how conception happens, things that, and earlier eras are mysterious, unknowable, invisible, become visible. We gain a lot of, and and then that, that knowledge becomes not only visible, but available to everyone. We gain this sort of massive, really soaring, limitless confidence that everything can be known, and that everyone can know it. <laughs> and so we go from this world where pretty much everything is a mystery and as you say it's not bad logic to imagine that people in power are conspiring against you to a world in which very little is left mysterious uh and then that that just opens up this space for well there must be an explanation and I myself can come up with the explanation if I just bring all the evidence together
2: it's um it's it's Striking me when you talk about being able to see germs, and you know, vac- and you said earlier it's a vaccination against um, conspiracy theories that that actually vaccination itself is now the site of a new one. Um, and I was thinking about that one because that one is difficult to see the benefit because that that the vaccination sort of um, idea, even though that comes from there is provable science, as you say, that we can see that has been verified. There is still this idea that that's a that's a conspiracy theory um which i never quite understood because i don't understand whose benefit it would be <laughs> do you see what i mean to yeah. to to, right. Right. to spread the disease could,
3: yeah i think it's a it's a deep dark hole to try to understand the logic behind the anti-vaccination argument right who who is who is scheming to destroy the health of our children yeah. but if you think about you know uh 70 years ago in the 1950s when Jonas Salk you know discovers and perfects the, the 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 polio vaccine that's a moment of the heyday of expert authority in yeah. the west right that that there is there's been this revolution in the biomedical sciences there's this incredible enthusiasm for all kinds of new knowledge i mean that's the same decade that sees decade that sees watson and crick you know kind of crack the code the dna code that there's this explosion of enthusiasm and excitement about what can be known and who we can, we will all live better lives for the work that these experts are doing. But the 1950s is also the heyday of conspiracy theory in the form of McCarthyism. Yeah. There, There's something kind of, I think, tied together there with these kind of great scientific leaps that, oh, well, there's this other invisible thing, right? And it's, all these communists are working for the federal government, or you know, yeah. the, there is this menace of homosexuals around the world, or there's a kind of renewed anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory in the 1950s as well, that there's, there's always going to be this kind of reaction against new forms of knowledge. Uh, and actually, that, you, you go yeah. back
1: further. Your essay starts a little... Before that, you, you talk about President Garfield's assassination in 1881. And so... This this world that you're describing in the 50s may have its origins in the sort of 1880s, the late Victorian period, where a lot of scientific advances are happening. Individualism is on the rise. And, and maybe what you're saying is that's the that's the, the, the petri dish uh, for the beginnings of, of conspiracies.
3: Yeah, I really think the 1880s are, are where a lot happens and turns. Cause, so in 1881, the American president, James Garfield, is shot. And it takes him a while to die. And the 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 motivation of the guy who shot him is is somewhat mysterious, but it's at a really crucial turning point, kind of epistemologically, because newspapers, daily newspapers, have a new presence in the reading lives of ordinary people, and there's this whole new kind of pulp world of investigation, the birth of the detective, like that's the decade that sees the beginnings of Sherlock Holmes, right? So, and journalism as a as a field is really it considers itself founded in that era in the 1880s. So we have all these journalists who consider themselves to be sleuths. The first private eye, where I live in New England, first private eye opens his doors in 1879. People are kind of obsessed with the work of detection and kind of prying into other people's lives and then publishing. It's also the age, you know, the big real kind of popularization of photography. So you can kind of spy on one another. And so when Garfield is shot, all the newspapers in the country essentially lead a kind of crowdsourced investigation into what possibly could have been the motive of the guy who shot him. And there are these various different theories about, well, you know, he was in love with the president. Oh, he was, you know, he was actually himself a foreign spy, or he was a spurned office seeker. And then there's a theory that he was just the dupe. He was hired by a, you know, a cabal of secret anti-Garfield politicians as part of what came to be called the conspiracy theory that, that, so there's the, you know, there's a kind of madman theory. There's a homosexual spurned lover theory. There's a spurned office secret theory. And then there's the conspiracy theory. And that's where that, the term that we, you know, now use all the time, because we see this everywhere comes into common use, but it's, it's very much a part of the, the thrill of, of, of the spectacle of a tragedy and a large number of people involved in trying to make sense of it. And
1: actually when you talk about the 1880s of this rising technology, you, you, you could easily be talking in the same way about the 21st century, You know, a new technology which brings people together, which makes the world smaller, which makes people able to pry into the lives of their colleagues and people they don't even know more easily. The, the sort of revolution you're talking about in 1880 could be the Silicon Valley revolution mm. of, of the beginning of the 20- 21st century.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's all those same features. Also, it also accelerates the transmission of information because the dailiness of the papers or there'll be like three papers a day, like a city will have three different editions. There's a great speeding up of how information is circulating, which, of course, is also true in our own day. And, you know, the way I always think of it is that when the technology of communication outpaces the speed of thought, things (laughs) tend to go pretty badly. People, you know, adjust a little bit and try to figure out ways to slow down or maybe newspapers begin to think, well, maybe they're actually riling things up and they begin to adopt new rules and become more cautious and that's where, you know, you get by the eighteen nineties the great kind of cult of objectivity in the news. There's this new kind of commitment to okay, we have to calm ourselves down, we have to look at the facts, we have to only report what we can verify. How did that turn on.
1: out in the end, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> it's going well. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, going well. Well, you know, that has its it has its moment, yeah. that, Just- that that reaction to this the kind of zaniness of the explosion of a new form of, of knowledge making and uh, communications technology
1: can we say though here's and here's the thing i never believe conspiracy theories jill ever because they're always too complicated and most people are too incompetent to gather together to do anything secretly because that's not how human nature works but as you make clear in your piece has reality ever actually buttressed the notion of conspiracy theories because we wouldn't want to believe that the cia plotted to, to sort of use lsd uh, to destabilise Cuba, or to, uh, or try to plot to bring down the Guatemalan government, or, or, or Watergate, or any of those other things. There is moments where, although we all scorn conspiracy theories and government up to no good, there's also evidence of it actually happening as well.
3: Yeah, and then the response is sort of wildly out of proportion to that. I mean, if you think about. Um... There's a a tremendously vital way in which the revelations of the Pentagon Papers, which are published in 1971, demonstrate, you know, beyond a doubt that American presidents, you know, from Eisenhower forward had been lying to the American people and lying to Congress about American engagement in Vietnam. That there was this conspiracy on the part of the people in the White House uh, to misrepresent Americans' activities and also the various commitments uh, in Vietnam. And shortly, you know, following immediately on the heels of that, in fact, as a result of a set of actions that kind of uh, begin with the release of the Pentagon Papers is the Watergate investigation, which reveals that uh, Nixon, who was not part of the Pentagon Papers, the Pentagon Papers not impugn Nixon, was engaged in this completely different different cover-up and has been lying to the American people. And now this evidence, too, is unimpeachable because of the technology of audio recording. So Nixon had all these tapes. So you on the one hand, you could sort of say rationally, holy crap, like the government been lying to me for my whole lifetime. And it's great that this has come out. And now there are these investigations and we can kind of start afresh. Or you can say, now I don't believe anything. And a lot of people take that second course of action. I mean, it's really the um, the first claims that the moon landing, the Apollo moon landing, we've just celebrated the 50th anniversary of this summer, from 1969. The first claim that that was actually a hoax that Stanley Kubrick of all people had had made
0: you know, right, fake yeah.
3: film of the moon landing that this was a hoax committed on the American people. That follows just you know immediately on the heels of the Watergate uh, scandal. And you kind of just see like a a door opens and then suddenly the door's like pushed down by a mob and there's not even like a doorway left anymore. What, it's the, just this incredible that, spew of, of public doubt.
1: Is that not the consequence? I always think this is the consequence of postmodernism generally, um, which is that once you quite rightly start to show skepticism, you know, after centuries of having to just accept stuff that's told to you by authorities, it's very healthy. And revolutionary to to question workings and to look behind things, but that the what seems to have been the corollary of that is once you stop believing in everything, you stop believing in anything. And we now live in a world where, not least because you, you know you've got a president who who has no relationship to the truth what, what, whatsoever, but we don't believe anything. We believe what we want to believe collectively, and evidence no longer matters. So with the sort of the, the extension of this world, which starts in the seventies and is this postmodern effect is. That we're so skeptical, we no authority exists which we can trust.
3: Yeah, and doesn't that make you think we're really ripe for some kind of giant religious revival? Like I think this is just a very kind yeah. of fuzzy edge of a big religious revival, because this is kind of the people's desperate need to have something they can believe. I think is it is a truly human. Characteristic. But I do think it's worth thinking about what happens in those middle decades of the 20th century, like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because I think what happens is that the left and the right, who don't agree about anything, come to agree that nobody can know anything. So on the left, as you say, it's postmodernism, right? It's kind of from within the academy, there emerges this, you know, deeply theorized critical sensibility about the constructedness of all knowledge. All knowledge is situated, all knowledge is contingent. All knowledge tells you more about the the speaker than about the the spoken knowledge. So this incredible, incredibly elaborated criticism, especially criticism of scientific knowledge and of the supposed legitimacy or of of scientific knowledge, or in a hierarchy of knowledge, science is the one unassailable form of knowledge, and everything else. So there's there's a whole assault on science that that postmodern uh, kind of historians of science, in particular, really engage in. But on the right, there's a completely different assault on truth, as it has often been called. Because on the right, the conservatives, both in the UK and the US, kind of look around and they say, look, the problem with our attempt to seize power is that the press is dominated by liberals and the courts are dominated by liberals and The universities are dominated by liberals. Now, these are not like leftists. These are centrist liberals, you know, the kind of great kind of liberal consensus of the middle decades of the 20th century. But our institutions that arbitrate knowing anything, the courts, the universities and the press, you know, are are in the throes of liberalism. And so conservatives say to themselves quite explicitly, you know, how we'll gain power is by attacking the legitimacy of these three institutions of the university of the press and of the courts and we will just say again and again and again you can't believe anything that comes out of those institutions because they're all they're all, it's all politics it's all it's all law it's all politics disguised as knowledge and so they begin their assault which leads you know, in the sense, in the case of the press, the other strategy is to take over, to found an alternative press, you know, the sort of Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ailes Friday, like we will slowly take, you know, create an alternative conservative media. And in the courts, too, Well, in the U.S., we'll take over the federal courts, taking over positions of, of appointing people to the courts, and that has worked as well. So by the time you get to the 1970s, decades of this kind of conservative assault on institutions of of learning and of, of knowledge arbitration have has really had an effect. And meanwhile, the, the within those institutions, they're themselves kicking themselves by, uh, you know, you could argue that the press uh, is kind of complicit and undermining itself in the 1970s. Yeah. Certainly the university with postmodernism is undermining legitimacy of its own structures of knowledge. So kind of from the right and the left, they sort of meet in the middle, and the one thing they agree on is we can't know anything.
1: Jill, the great thing about your your piece for us and this conversation is, and, and conspiracy theories generally, is that it opens up a, a, a prism through which you can pretty much look at any aspect of, of both historical and contemporary culture. Um, what a great pleasure it is uh, uh, speaking to you. Jill Lepore, thank you very much indeed.
3: Hey, thanks a lot.
1: It's a fascinating area, this. And once I read this piece, you, you kind of think that maybe we are in the era of the conspiracy yes, theory. Yes, and-
2: it's a really good point that, that it's partly because some of them, quite a lot of them, have turned out to be true, which you, you kind of don't want to say because there's so many that are bonkers and so many that tend very quickly, as she says in her piece, towards the unpleasant and specifically towards the anti-Semitic.
1: Yeah, which we didn't even get a chance of. I mean, that's the other thing. We didn't even talk about racism yeah. and anti-Semitism, there's, which is that's another a area. huge, uh, uh, in a huge strand. But when element, I've said it? phones on it, there's the problem. exactly right. That there have been some examples of it, but nothing like the ones that are... No but are no.
2: considered... And, and as you say, they're not usually as well-structured and no. as secret.
1: I remember doing I Someone called I, I can't remember what it was. It was something that, that everyone in the media was, was not showing examples of terrorism committed. Mm. They existed. There was footage of them, but everyone in the media was gathering together. And I remember saying on this radio, tell me when this is happening. You know, when are people gathering together? How are they gathering together? When do they
2: get together and decide and
1: that it will decide, all be yeah, secret? At what point? And, and, you know, nothing, no one can organise anything in the world yeah. well. No one can organise, <laughs> people can't cough Bunch in Downing Street without someone the... leaking it to the media. <laughs> there's basically surveillance for everything. Everyone is talking all the time. To, to sustain a proper conspiracy, I actually think is beyond the competence of...
2: Oh, yeah, people. I agree. And also the likelihood of the Guardian, the Times, the Telegraph, the oh, Sun, the Mail, the, yeah. whoever to twi- agree. Everyone on Twitter, everyone, <laughs> on, everyone on Facebook. It's absolutely vanishingly unlikely. It's a bit like the
1: Shakespearean conspiracy theory that he didn't write it. Like oh, yes, For that yeah. to work, they produced a folio in 1623 into a London where everyone who's known Shakespeare lives. And they go, oh, here, Shakespeare didn't write the plays so here he let's all pretend he did. And everyone goes, Alright then. Okay, we'll pretend. I have nothing to say. Why would (laughs) they? Yeah, It's just obviously, it's always cock up. The great lesson in life.
0: Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Was it inevitable that I began this section by saying what I've just said? Was that question inevitable? Was that? And so on and on. Could I have started it differently if I'd wanted, perhaps by singing a bit of oasis or emitting a loud whistle? Are any of my decisions based on the power of free choice? Janine Ishmael has written an essay this week on the thorny old question of free will that talks about some of the philosophical questions raised by the subject. And regular listeners of the podcast will know that confronted by a philosophical problem, we have no choice but to turn to Tim Crane, our philosophy editor, and he has no choice but to come on the line and try to explain the answer to our tiny, confused brains. Tim, hello. Hello, Stig. Uh, right, free will. How would you summarise the philosophical problem of free will?
5: Well, in many ways, it's a, it's a simple problem. Um, I'm glad to, to hear see, it. <laughs> it's, best to, it's best to think of it as a conflict between two things, um, two um, things that seem to be obviously true uh the first is that what we do seems to us to be up to us under our control and you know when, when you decide to have pasta for dinner tonight you can just decide that or you can decide something else it's just up to you you can decide to eat whatever you have in your house or or not to eat at all or to throw yourself out of the window we have this choice we have this element of control in our lives uh, which seems to be one of the most obvious things about our lives um, but that's in conflict with another thing which is perhaps less obvious but it's very widely held by uh, i guess scientists and thinkers since the at least the 17th century which is the idea that everything that happens is fixed by what happened before it um, so even if you decided to have pasta tonight for dinner because you'd been reading a book about Pasta and that, but you read the book about Pasta because of something else, and that happened because of something else that happened before, and eventually you go back to things that happened before you were born. Um, And if you trace the chain of events back, you'll get back to the beginning of the universe, if the universe had a beginning, or some time before there was any life on Earth. Now, the way that physicists have thought about that is in terms of the idea of determinism. But determinism is the view that um, if you fix the facts at any point in the past, those facts plus the laws of nature determine everything else in the future, that there's no other way that the future could go once the facts in the past are fixed.
1: So, so the question that follows from that, are there... Th- so, this is, And Janine Ismail makes this argument that, therefore, if you re-ran the the universe from 14 billion years ago with all of the laws as they are operated for our universe, we'd end up in this conversation we're having now in exactly the same way. That's right,
5: yeah. So you fix two things. You fix the the initial facts, what they call the initial conditions or how things were at the beginning of time and the laws of nature. And those two things just determine uh, that we're having this conversation now. Is it possible that there
1: are things that are not determined by physical laws? Do we have yeah. to accept the first principle? You're saying no.
2: I am saying no, but okay. I mean, Tim knows better than me.
1: <laughs> so every, so what we're saying is there's nothing in the realm of kind of impulse or emotion or the intangible, the ephemeral. You can argue that that is controlled by physical. Well, things. is it? Is that right?
5: Well, no, that's, that's the consequence of determinism, yeah. If determinism is true and the laws of physics are absolutely general, they apply to absolutely everything in the world, then even though it may look as if the laws of physics have nothing to do with, say, emotion or spontaneity or morality or art or all these other things, um, as a matter of fact, if determinism is true, there couldn't be any difference in you know, whether someone judges an act to be wrong um, if, uh, unless there was some difference in the past or difference in the laws of nature.
1: Well, that's the following point, isn't it? Which you know, and uh, Janan talks about the Clutter murders, which are in in uh, in Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Because there is a this, if we are a purely deterministic universe, if we accept determinism, punishing someone for a crime makes no logical sense because they could have done
5: nothing other than commit that crime.
2: But then we can't do anything other than punish them anyway.
5: Well, that's true. That that's true too. But there may be there may be a function in punishment other than. Uh which doesn't rely on um the the criminals being morally responsible, you may think that it's important to um to keep them away from you know do, doing the crime again or it's important to keep them away from society or uh, what you can't think is that you that punishing them for the crime um requires that they um could have done otherwise because. They if determinism is true, then they couldn't really have done otherwise.
1: Now, as you know, Tim, I've defined philosophy uh, uh, on the pages of the TLS as creating a problem that doesn't actually need to matter and then failing to solve it. That is the sort of definition <laughs> of the great, uh, the, the great discipline that is yeah. philosophy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does this pass yeah, the right. common sense test? Because I mean, are you are you saying determinism is true, Tim?
5: Uh, well, I think determinism isn't actually true, because I. I think that the <laughs> phenomena of quantum mechanics shows that it isn't true. Ah, yeah, but I was I, about to talk about that. But I think that's irrelevant mechanics. to the question of free will for the reason that, uh, that Janani-Charles says in her piece.
1: Go on, explain that. So um, go on, you've just thrown in quantum quantum physics. Yeah, I'm and,
5: sorry about that. And
2: already um, a morass of difficulty. Well, no, go for it, go for it. I
5: know. So quantum mechanics says that at the smallest levels of matter, the smallest scale, ele- things like electrons and and photons and these these fundamental particles things happen there not as a matter of deterministic law but only with a certain probability or chance of happening. But if quantum mechanics is right then you could run the universe all over again uh, and it wouldn't, you wouldn't have the same particular history at the, le- at the level of fundamental particles.
1: And those fundamental particles could of course influence some bigger particles which is to say me or you.
5: Well, they could. But um, the, the problem with that is that no one really knows exactly how the fundamental particles relate to the uh, macroscopic world of ordinary objects. That's, uh, that's the problem dramatised by Schrodinger's example of the cat in the box. Schrodinger's cat, I don't know if you know that example, but maybe I do, we do yeah, go, kind of go there.
1: Well, no, so that, yeah. that's a, to, open, to find out if the cat's dead or alive, you've got to open the door and therefore it's both dead and alive before you open the door.
5: Uh, this, it's uh, something along those lines yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I love that I
0: love
1: saying Sorry. that to professional philosophers where I just sort of crash through <laughs> eons <laughs> of of nuanced thinking with something completely
2: is there is there <laughs> another um theory as well as well as um, quantum mechanics how about the multiverse theory doesn't that also it puts a bit of a spanner in the works doesn't it because if if there is a a kind of um yeah. point at which you know the thing is either a wave mm-hmm. or a particle and you're either going to have pasta or rice mm-hmm. one is doing one in one place and another is doing another in the other place mm-hmm. and and that again that doesn't pass stig's test of 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 sounding like common sense but the but but more and more physicists i think or from what i can see can't refute that because there isn't a good enough argument to refute it is that right
5: yeah well I, I, I think multiverse and quantum mechanics are very very different. Quantum mechanics is one of the best confirmed physical theories ever yes, and yeah. all sorts of things that we do yeah. rely on it and it's the best theory of matter that has ever been. The multiverse is pure speculation and actually it's a the multiverse is a piece of philosophy really It doesn't really play any role in it as I understand it doesn't really play any role in um, it, in any real physics it's kind of cosmological speculation. The idea is that anything that could happen does happen somewhere in another universe. It's it's not a... It, I, it's, I, I think it's based on all sorts of um, dodgy reasoning, but... Um, so, so we're uh, Actually, there isn't time to go into that now. Well, yeah, well,
1: I think we've, 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 we've crashed around all sorts of things uh, uh, rather quickly. So what, are you saying, though, Tim, that you, you don't think determinism is true because of quantum mechanics?
5: Yeah. Quantum mechanics is irreducibly probabilistic or chancy, then determinism isn't true. But I think that's not relevant to the question of freedom of the will, because I don't think our freedom of the will depends on how things are with absolutely the smallest particles of matter. Freedom of the will is about us and our control over what we do.
1: But hang on a second. Uh, We're also I'm not sure I, I buy that because the argument, which I also don't buy, is that everything that we do is a product of physical things that have happened to us in the past. Not until it's happened generally in the past. So if you rerun the universe from before humanity, you still end up with humanity. Why is that not hold true for at the quantum level? Because we're still talking about things that aren't directly connected to us, ultimately leading us to where we are now.
5: Well, it's it's not true at the quantum level just because you you know you run the universe again and an electron has one property in, in 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 the universe as it actually was, and you run the universe again. And it it has another property, and that has no other explanation. It's just a basic probabilistic fact. Um, Now, some people don't accept that, and they say that there must be some further explanation. That's called the hidden variable view, that there must be some further explanation of why electrons differ in their properties. But my my feeling, why I say this has got nothing to do with free will, is that I don't want my free will to depend on how some electron... moves in my brain you know i wanted to depend on me and my own control of my action
1: but do you want it to depend on how some monkey scratched themselves three billion years ago the 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 two are still as unrelated yeah exactly exactly i
2: would but they're not are they because the electron in your brain is your thought process so that is your free will and no sorry not your free will that is your desires and hopes and beliefs and what you want for tea
5: some some people have a view a bit like that that they think that that genuine free will comes from how particles sort of swerve around in your brain but um again i think this is pure speculation so it's there's no no one knows how the electrons in our brain are related to thought processes i mean i think we're
1: we're now at the mind body problem are we now tim we've 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 got we've, we've now we've hit schrodinger's cat we've in we've done quantum we're now at the mind body
5: problem are we they're, they're very closely related mind-body. The free will problem is more, in some way, more gripping, I think, than the mind-body well, problem. Cause I'm it's not quite
1: sure where you stand on it, Tim, then, because are you saying that you genuinely do have free will? Yes. And therefore, the deterministic, you don't, if you replayed the universe again, with the laws of physics remaining constant, you think there's a chance that you would have a different outcome?
5: uh well, I don't know. <laughs> so I don't. I don't have a solution to this. No one knows. So I, just, I think it's a real but problem. I think it, it's a real I think it's a real problem. Yeah. Is it also I that think,
2: you think you have you that you've got free will because of quantum mechanics? So two hundred years ago, you might not have thought we had free will because you, we might have thought that we were living in the clockwork universe and everything was playing out.
5: Yeah. No, I don't think that. I th- well, I think quantum mechanics just indicates how things could be other than otherwise than determinism says I mean it shows how determinism could be false but But only at the micro level not the macro only the micro level that's right
1: and we don't really know and physicists don't I mean one of the the great things about learning a little bit about something is to realize how Mm. little there is to know in in some because it's impossible (laughs) to to say I mean I just I think there's the common sense the kind of sniff test of all of this is we like to believe that I could make a decision at any point in the next 20 seconds to just tap the table yeah. A cu- and I don't even know when I'm going to do it because I haven't thought about it. And at some point it's yeah. going to happen like that. And. To feel that that was somehow set down 14 billion years ago, it it just feels improbable, doesn't it? It's not
2: necessarily that it was, if I understand this right, which I probably don't, and Tim will tell me why, it's not necessarily just that it was set down 14 billion years ago, it's that it's it's an outcome of the laws of nature. You can't operate outside the laws of physics. You have to operate within the laws of everything as they exist. So there's no
5: sort of super ability. This is absolutely right. So so what Stig said is actually a statement of the problem, which is that on the one hand, you can decide to do whatever you like. You can slap your your hand on the table whenever you like, exactly when you want. That seems obvious. On the other hand, you can't break the laws of physics. Um, So our actions don't break the laws of physics. If there are laws of physics at all, then they're universal. They apply everywhere and they control what happens.
1: And so there's kind of a connection, the sort of Calvinist view of the world, um, yeah. which is the, you know, predestination and double predestination that, that God knows. And so you can actually insert God into all of this, can't you? You can say God knows yes. when everything we're going to do, everything that's going to happen, uh, and therefore we can't operate our own free will as moral agents in that sense.
5: That's right. They're closely related. They're not quite the same thing because the Calvinists said there's only one possible way the world could be. Whereas the determinist said things could be other than the way they were if they'd been, been different at the beginning of time. So if you had a few, a little bit less matter at the beginning of time, then the world would have been different. So the world could have been different. Whereas the Calvinist says the world can only ever be one way. So there's okay. only one possible world for the Calvinist.
1: Him, it's an absolute I, I do i do love talking about this sort of stuff
5: do you That'd like be, it I, 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 I I, yeah be. I, I, you believe in philosophy really sticks, well yeah. no i think is, at one level i believe <laughs> in the does.
1: utter futility of philosophy because <laughs> we never get anywhere but i think the journey to getting nowhere is is rather a pleasant one
5: i agree yeah <laughs> apart from the bit about getting nowhere of course you get somewhere what's what, a journey well, where, do we, where do we
2: where have we got because you thought about mm. something that you hadn't thought about before but yeah. that's the journey my point is, it there's was. no, ru- there's yes, no ru- then, But then you are, you are different at the end of the journey than yeah, you were at the beginning. God, sir. That's
1: right. Yeah,
2: all right, all right,
1: all right. He's <laughs> uh, had enough now. I've had enough. I've had enough of all this. <laughs> Tim Crane, what a joy speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dick. Thanks, Cheers. Bye bye. The point is, I always find with philosophy, you can bumble along on any of these issues, and then someone says, "Oh, you know." What is the mind-body problem, and then they don't solve it. So ultimately, no. But you
2: can't. They're not. It's not necessarily about solving. You can. You can talk. You can set out positions and get somewhere near to to the end of it, or you can have your own position. Tim's got his position. Yeah. But it's really interesting because I started reading about this and I thought, oh, I know exactly what I think, and then I thought, no, I've got absolutely no idea. But maybe what you're I think. always
1: going to think that.
2: Maybe, but maybe. The, there's all sorts of things going on. There's this idea from this bloke from the determinism thing. I'm going to do a really horrible, <laughs> awful, bad uh, physics.
1: Schrodinger's cat thing. I just did.
2: Yeah. It was worse than that. But the, so in the eight, no, nineteenth century, the guy called Laplace, who was one of the guys who 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 sort of thought about determinism, and he had this thing called la, the 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 demon, the Laplace demon, which you could put at, at any point in time either in the past or in the future and if he knew everything, or she which you obviously you can't so it's, it's just, you know, yeah. it's a thought experiment if they knew everything, then they could tell you everything that was going on. If they knew all the laws of, of, of where everything was, they had all the information available, they could tell you exactly what was going on. But it's only ever theoretical because that's not ever possible It's interesting though, isn't it?
1: Laplace's is demon
2: I think so. People can write in and tell me how wrong I am. Fine
1: Let, Let's encourage
2: people to do that This week in the TLS, we are thinking about the avant-garde. Our cover, if you haven't seen it, is almost entirely blank. Not because we've run out of ideas or had a big weekend, but because we wanted to do something different that we hadn't done before, a break with tradition and perhaps a space where something new can emerge.
1: It looks lovely, doesn't it?
2: We think so. I haven't yeah. seen it yet. I think it, it looks yeah. splendid. So, yeah. You can yeah. you can draw in it whatever you want.
1: Yeah, it's like the it's, uh, when we've got the great eighteenth century man here. It's a bit like Tristram Shandy. Is there a bit in Tristram Shandy, Michael Keynes, where? you can draw an image of your ideal mistress. That's absolutely right, yeah. To your own liking, I
6: think, is the invitation. Yeah. Okay, so that that's
2: offers. enough sexist... Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not sex; it's true. It's just, let's I mean, just report, no, that, I'm just reporting. No, but, oh, that, yeah. you know... I wasn't being sexist. No, okay. no, all right, then you're just reporting on it. Can I get yeah. through my, my uh, introduction? Go on, yeah. <laughs> I was at a space, yes, yeah. where something new can emerge. Exactly. Is that a good definition of avant-garde? Maybe not, but it turns out this is a surprisingly difficult thing to agree on. Yeah. Um, So we're looking at the avant-garde this week through art and fiction and poetry, which we will turn to in a bit. But first, Michael Keynes, of this parish, has written about a non-traditional approach to writing about books. Dare we call it avant-garde criticism? Maybe we dare. Michael, many thank yous for joining us. My pleasure. Um, You've reviewed four books for us. Can you tell us... I'm sorry to do this, but I'm going to just make you do all the work. <laughs> Can you tell us about the self-imposed rules and restraints of each one? Are
1: they
6: Olympian rules.
2: I mean, Michael's right. going to tell you that, but I'm I not. I think doing... there's an element of that. Yes, yes,
6: absolutely. I'm going to have a go at describing them and you can tell me. What I, I just mean that we've
2: we managed to get
1: Ollipian in again, which <laughs> I think is, is, is one of my little mini, mini attempts. That could
6: over. be an Olympian rule in itself. Indeed. It, it has to be in the paper, so right, etc. Cetera, et cetera so cetera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, these four books definitely have an element of that. The thing they share is they all, I think... Um, The fundamental thing they share is they all blend an element of critical writing with personal writing, with element of autobiography or something like that. So the first one is called Harvester of Hearts. It's by Rachel Fedder. And the subtitle is Motherhood Under the Sign of Frankenstein. The idea, one of the ideas in it, is that she's writing about feminist responses to Frankenstein and to... um, Mary Shelley's uh, shorter, sort of a novella called Matilda, which was published posthumously. It wasn't published until, I think, 1959. But if you were going to this book just looking for that information, it'd be quite a frustrating experience because Fedo was teaching these two works while she was heavily pregnant. She then writes about the experience of Oh, oh, gosh, living in 21st century America in the age of Trump is under the sign of Frankenstein and in the age of Trump. And she writes in these short paragraphs, sometimes just a couple of lines, sometimes just a line here and there, that dart around between the different strands, all the things she's thinking that's, that turn out to be interconnected. So she writes, of course, about her own life as an academic and as um, a mother, but also about Mary Shelley's. Mary Shelley um, had, uh, I think, the only one of her children, I think, to survive her, was born in the same year that she wrote Frankenstein. So there's definite uh, connections. Not to her children. hideous progeny. Not her hideous progeny, yes. Hideous and beautiful progeny. Percy. Percy uh, Florence Shelley. Oh, lovely. So that's one, and that's, that's got a very distinct... Um, style, it's not linear, it's, it's called, I don't want to say fragmentary because these sections are sort of complete in themselves, but each uh, chapter is a sort of essay that works by these, these strange little motifs and little sections until you work your way through one particular idea, like erasure or motherhood something like that um, and there's connection uh, this may be Olypian, who knows <laughs> the second book is called The Hundreds and the clue is in the title each section is a hundred words or a multiple of a hundred words which could be called this is cheating that's that Oolipian is that Olympian? Yeah. I think yeah, that's Olympian feel what's the, like um, a drabble yeah. a drabble is the name for these things if you're writing a piece of you know uh, microfiction or something
2: I was about to say something was 100 exercises and something, but it was 99, so I'm not going to say it. Go on, There's lots go. of
6: variations on a theme, aren't there? Harry mm. Matthews is an Olympian who wrote a book, was it 20, 20 Lines a Day? That's mm. very good. And again, it's just personal, whatever's... It's kind of a notebook, really. This work's a bit like that, only it's a collaborative work. It's by um, Lauren Berlon and Kathleen Stewart, I think one's an English professor, one's a professor of anthropology. And they're looking, I think, um, at just particular moments and I think trying to hold back from... Um, analysis you know bearing down with a big idea in a particular moments but just capturing these moments and asking questions about how we how we analyze those things it's a very interesting work as well you know very much like Fedders in that its it's center isn't one particular work of literature but lots of particular moments and it asks questions such as what influences have you been under obviously she would say well I've been working on Frankenstein and Matilda and by the way I've just had a baby mm. and they have asking that in lots of um, various different ways in these hundred word bursts and so you, you, you don't even get really a conventional introduction in an academic, conventional way says I'm going to do this and in yeah. chapter 5 I do this and to conclude you find out about what's going on, what's going through the mind gradually it's clearly been a
1: collaborative And where do you stand on all this Michael? Because are you sitting there longing for a monograph? <laughs> <laughs> has that phrase ever been uttered <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I often think of you sitting and longing for a monograph I don't, I, 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 I don't know why <laughs> can you just see <laughs> I'm in the office
6: and I'm looking yeah. like longing I need a monograph, a monograph. Yeah. oh god bring, bring me a monograph I'm saying Cause this
1: isn't actually unconnected to our discussion of conspiracy theories it's the idea of the modern world authority is fragmented so much mm. that actually the way to testify to it is not to try and put it together as a coherent whole but to, to embrace the, 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 the fragmentation
6: yeah, I think these books reflect that, you know, there's a kind of conformity, a sort of dull expectation that a book's got to be written a certain way. If it's a critical work, it's got to be written in this particular way. I think that obviously has its place, but these are, I would guess, you could call them experiments in doing it differently. The third one is Tunnel Vision by Kevin Brethnack, which has already had a lot of acclaim. It's been out for a couple of months, I think, and it's a series of interconnected essays. It weaves around his own life. There's a lot of sex and drugs and cool. not rock and roll but modern history and modern art it's really fantastic and quite uh, quite sort of sordid and the last one has got a long title for a short book on the literary means of representing the powerful as powerless by stephen zoltansky that's a mouthful but the thing is his constraint is seem, seems to be time in that i think his idea is he's going to write the this the, the thesis in a day so, although he sets out his plan at the beginning, it's a very short book. You know, you 64 pages. Yeah. yeah, 64 pages. That's as much as apparently you can do in a day's writing about reading. He let, set a plan at the beginning, and then later on he says, I, I got really tired. Good <laughs> morning. He just has to leave a section blank. And just time as gets to the evening, as like, I should probably watch a film. <laughs> it's so, <laughs> an odd
2: thing to think on the day when you're writing a book yeah. but anyway it's, and on. it's
6: a curious one that because you do you do think as well, well what, for, okay I've, maybe i've described it badly but you might think well what connection has that got to the theory he's putting mm. forward to the you know to the his polemical position and then he, he ties it together i think quite well at, at the end he talks about his own sort of um you know mortality really and there's an urgency to the message
1: i have a question michael that is this 20 years ago Anyone writing anything, I'm talking really about all journalism, but also literary criticism, mm-hmm. was pretty much said: don't mention yourself. There's you, you should be writing in a sort of the voice of, a, of an authoritative third person, sort of almost a ghostly figure that, that is almost omniscient, and that's what you're writing as. That's the style. And then over the last twenty years, the intrusion of I has uh, has happened. And now, if you go, if you make a pitch to a publisher for a book, you say I want to write about Shelley, they'll say. Do you not mean you want to tread in the footsteps of Shelley and think about how Shelley has influenced you as a person and your love life and now is that a bad thing in your book Michael or is it a good thing or is it to be used with caution?
6: I don't know if it's good or bad I think it's one of those things that's a product of our uh, glorious internetted age and all the rest of it I remember yeah around that time 20 years ago writing my first pieces for the TLS and an editor said you know you can't use I unless you've worked here for Three years or two years or whatever it was, and it was half a joke. It was half serious, yeah. And it's quite, but actually, in a way, it was good discipline. Just to go, I can describe this book without fatuously or unthinkingly going, "I think this," or "I did this," or a whole lead paragraph saying, "This is what I had for breakfast." Now, to the book under review, as a reader, I might not want to know about that stuff. It's got, it but it can work, and I think in these books, it, it does work pretty See, well.
1: And I, I think I probably, perhaps more than you, Michael, I'm, I'm more sympathetic to the to because so I'm quite interested in, well, not quite what people have for breakfast, but <laughs> the interplay between a person, because to me it seems more honest because one of the great lies in life is, that's really damaging is that everyone else you always imagine is operating in this frictionless void with no issues and no, no, mm. nothing, nothing interfering with their, whatever they're doing. And in fact, everything in terms of how you read a book or how you talk to someone or how you do anything in your life is a product of influences Absolutely. And there's a yeah, kind of honesty yeah, yeah. in testifying to...
2: The laws of nature, I was about yeah, to say. The yeah. physical laws of nature. Well, we did this is free all t- will earlier.
1: Yeah.
6: You know, I completely prepare to <laughs> We've accept... We've done free will. I, I completely prepare <laughs> to uh, confess, I contradict myself. here. I'm saying? I think these four books are really interesting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great <days of> reading. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, But they ask exactly those, those questions. You know, what influences have you been under? What shapes, what you what you write and how you do it. And that's um, kind of
1: reader response theory as yeah, well, in, Yeah, in a way, exactly, isn't
6: it? yeah. I, I think there's a, something really just a stylistic thing. That I like the, um, the, the, even if it's just a pretense or a piece of ventriloquism, I like the impersonal style for what it can say too.
2: I think, but I think that's, there's a, it's not that there's no value in that. There's real value in that because it can be very clear and help you to frame your own thinking. And But I think the, what I had for breakfast school, if you can do both, great but they're two very different things and they're both quite difficult and the yeah. danger of the what i had for breakfast school i think is that it which it, is a good name for a school it's a very good name for a school <laughs> is that if it's not done well it just gets a bit boring <laughs> yeah and someone just goes toast oh yeah it can become just it can be yeah. just
6: as conventional as the other well, thing that, and i'm thinking and i find that dull because we have had decades of it
1: yeah and that's a, and, and to broaden this out to avant-garde it's the same point isn't it that really you know, I once did a review of experimental fiction where I said the definition of experimental fiction is it's more fun to write than it is to read.
2: <laughs> that's the, your definition. Yeah, well, it. I think
1: it often is because I think there's a certain self-indulgence. And that's what we get to when we talk about avant-garde. You know, we've got, you know, this is a paper with full of avant-garde. There's avant-garde art, there's avant-garde poetry, there's avant-garde fiction. Mm. The, when done well, it is making you see something afresh, isn't it? It's, it's taking something and renewing it. When it's done badly, it is a self-indulgent refusal to play by the rules as if you're better than them. I wonder if those spring from
6: the same thing as well. on my way down here, I was just wondering whether avant-garde is is really the ultimate misnomer. It comes from a political context in the 1820s, from utopian socialism, apparently. So the idea is artists would be in the vanguard for society, Mm. not for art. Now that comes much later. I mean, you can talk about all these things together, it's obviously a very woolly term, it can stretch and go in different ways, it covers lots of different movements. But I wonder whether it's wrong when it comes to just thinking about art or literature or music or whatever, in that it's actually maybe a stopping and saying, hang on, what we have at the moment doesn't work, we've got to start something again. You could talk about Corbe as being you know, and, and, and realist art in the, in the mid-19th century as being a reaction to art as it was and saying this doesn't work, how about this? Yeah. You take the rough and the smooth, you need that experiment to renew art, make something interesting out of it again. So actually it's not the vanguard, it's the rearguard and they're picking yeah. things up as they go along, yeah. you go, well hang on, that didn't work.
1: And also I think there's an argument that you kind of refresh the gene pool a bit. Yeah, so although yeah, as an yeah. individual I might not want to read a vast novel that's only one paragraph, Mm -hmm. or I might get to parts of Ulysses where I struggle. Mm -hmm. But is the gene pool of the medium refreshed by this type of stuff happening? There's a benefit that goes on past it, isn't it? Because you, you're, you're shaking things up.
6: Yeah, there's an argument that there's, there's a kind of, you know, a capitalist or a bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, a, an appetite for novelty. So these things come along, as you say, some don't take, and they're still weird to us now, grappling to understand them. They'll never take. A few specialists and kind of virtue, literary virtue signalers will go, oh, I like that, I'm good, Look, check me out. <laughs> but other, other things will take, and they're easier to deal with.
2: And it's always good to, it's always good to have someone jumping in with new ideas. I think, isn't it? How, how is that not a good thing? Well, there is isn't an that's... argument,
6: and it's been put sorry, it's put in the TLS a couple of times, that really just any significant art, anything work it, worth its salt, does chance its arm and does do something new. So that's one massive, big problem for describing avant-garde. I, it's partly a social uh, social construct, let's say, it to is. do with movements
1: yeah. and so on. I tell you what, I feel we've, we've tackled some very too large topics. Well, three large topics, but they're too large in the sense of they're, they're impossible to do in 15 minutes.
2: Let's do a podcast of three and a half hours. <laughs> avant-garde. Does that sound avant-garde or just Let's more fun to write than to? a perfectly silent yeah. podcast yeah, yeah. of three and a half yeah. hours. More, no, our producer's shaking his head. Yeah. Let's not do more that. More fun to do
1: than to listen to, I think, <laughs> would
2: be the definition of that. That's all we
1: have time for this week. Our thanks go to the doctor, Michael Keynes, Jill Laporte, and Tim Crane. Do get yourself a copy of the TLS this week. The cover is an interesting experiment in avant-garde minimalism or subscribe so you never miss an issue next week we have a history special full of good stuff until then from lucy and from me goodbye